Welcome to MH Business Exchange, the podcast of McDonald Hopkins. I'm your host, Mike Witzke, and with me today is David Dressler. He's a litigation attorney in our Cleveland office and has a specialization in probate and trust litigation, which is going to be the topic of our podcast today. So welcome, David. Hello, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. So, you know, as an estate planning attorney, you know, probate litigation is an area that I just, I, you know, I, I hate to hear about, but it certainly seems to be something that I'm seeing more and more often these days. Um, and unfortunately, you know, controversies in estates happen every day and all the time. And um, so tell me a little bit about what is inheritance controversy litigation? And, you know, is it sometimes called probate litigation? Explain this to me. Probate litigation, contra inheritance controversy litigation, generally refers to disputes over money that passes upon death. So many people will have heard of will contests, which is one form. They, it's, but it's always, or mostly always, about changes in beneficial interests under unusual or suspicious situations, which I can get into later. And that's usually what it involves. And the reason why sometimes uh, you hear it referred to as probate litigation is because the probate courts have jurisdiction over many of these types of disputes. And therefore, the probate judges have really good grasp on these issues. And, and what are the most common types of matters that you see? There's a lot of different types of matters we see, but... I would say 90% of them are variations of a very common theme where a testator or a person makes changes to their will, trust, or beneficiary designations under suspicious circumstances. I call suspicious, but red flag uh, circumstances, such as later in life, after a second marriage, after a first spouse passes away when they are dependent, usually or frequently with dementia or Alzheimer's, and, and they make a change that is sort of uncharacteristic. And that change could be, like I said, in a will, uh, trust, or even life insurance policy, it could even be joint accounts. So it's, it's a variation of the exact same theme. And then as a result of that, to the extent it was what's, what's referred to as undue influence, the challenging party can try to uh, vacate that or sue the person who is responsible. Yeah, and and you know I I get calls from clients and and frequently calls from children of clients uh, who have these concerns. You know they're they're concerned that maybe their mother or father is being taken taken advantage of. I mean, what should someone do if they think that they've got a loved one that maybe is being unduly influenced? Right. So I'm working on a matter right now where it's a typical situation where there's the children of the decedent and they have actually filed an action against the second wife after, you know, half of his estate was left to her, you know, after a relatively short marriage. So, and while it was going on to go back a few years, these children, and when I say children, they're in their fifties and sixties, but that the children of the decedent knew or suspected something was going on. And there, frankly, there's not a lot you can do legally at that time to unwind it. And if you start doing things to find out what's going on or try to persuade the testator or their father, in this case, 
to raise concerns, then later on that will be under a spotlight. So there's uh, not a lot you can do to change it if you think it's going on. If you think something is really bad happening to a loved one, of course you should contact Adult Protective Services. Elder abuse is, a, is of paramount importance and the health of the person is more important than the transfer of the assets. But when I get involved, it's usually after the fact and the person has already passed away. Now, I mean, if we flip it then to the other side, what if you're the person that has maybe just recently inherited an unexpected amount, you know, has, has got this inheritance and now is, is concerned about, you know, are these other beneficiaries that were excluded going to sue me? Is there anything that somebody can do to avoid being sued if they're the beneficiary uh, of, of such an inheritance? That's a, that's a great question. And really, you have to even go uh, steps before that. So if you know that you are going to be left a gift from somebody while they're still alive, what you should know is that to the extent that you are involved with that gift, you are the person who gets an attorney to help. You are the person who actually drafts the document. You are going to be under far more scrutiny for that. If you are even taking care of the person as a, as a care provider, then you're going to be under scrutiny. But how can you avoid doing that? So somebody, let's say um, uh, an uncle of mine says, David, I want to leave you X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to go and make a change. Can you help me? And the answer is no, help you. Don't help. And just suggest to the person that they contact a good, solid attorney, a state planning attorney, to take care of it. And frankly, you should keep out of it. Because the more your fingerprints are on it, the more you give me as an attorney challenging you later, ammunition. And the best thing that can happen is using a very strong and capable attorney who then will be a witness in your favor later on to the extent there is a challenge. Yeah. And I know, you know, as an estate planning attorney, we see this all the time. You know, one child maybe brings mom in and says, mom wants to change the will and leave everything to me, you know, and I'm going to sit in on the meeting to make sure this all gets done right. That's not what you mean by, you know, making sure they get to an attorney because, you know, obviously if you're bringing them to the attorney, you're sitting there in all the meetings, you're, you're making sure mom is answering the, the questions the way you want her to answer. That's all going to be evidence that that's going to be a problem. Right. I think your, your, your tip of staying arm's length, let the, let the attorney handle it separately, be as independent of the process as you possibly can you know, certainly is great, is great. And I'll, and I'll give you an example, a case I had worked on many years ago. So the, um, you know, the, the one, the, the brother and sister who I was representing were then a suit was filed by other family members because a amendment to a trust was made later in life with, uh, for the, fa the father made an amendment to the trust. And when they started peeling the uh, skin away from the onion, you found out that in this particular case, my client, the daughter actually drafted the trust amendment. She went on her computer and, and helped her father out. Now, I, I absolutely don't, didn't believe and I don't believe that she was doing anything nefarious. I believe that she was doing what she understood her father wanted her to do. But the fact that she did it herself was almost like the smoking gun for the other side, to be honest. And, you know, because already there's in, in this area of law, and I don't want to get too technical, but when you're that caregiver or you're the fiduciary, 
you, there's a presumption of undue influence. So the whole thing starts off with if you if you receive the gift and you are the caregiver or you are a power of attorney or you had these fiduciary roles, we're going to presume there was undue influence. Now it's up to you to rebut it. And if an attorney then drafted it and you had nothing to do with it, you've rebutted it. If you drafted it, you may not even be able to rebut it. So it's it's crucial. And, and, you know, I, I had a case like that where, you know, mom had a, a will and a trust and the trust said when mom died, everything was divided equally among her three children. But before mom died, mom moved in with her son and lived with him for the last three or four years of her life. When mom died, you know, the daughters saw there were two daughters and a son. The daughter saw the trust said, OK, we're going to divide everything up equally. And lo and behold, over those three or four years that mom lived with son, Son had put himself as a joint owner on everything that mom had. So when mom died, the trust didn't control. Everything passed to him as the surviving joint owner. And that was a case, just as you said, he did it. He took mom to all the banks and said, put my name on this account. And that, you know, undue influence was easily proven by the right. two sisters that we represented. So you got to be careful about that, even if it was mom's wish that, you know, I want son to have this money because he took care of me in my last hours of need or you know uh you got to be careful about how you do that right and, and in that example so that's good so those are those were transferable on death changes but let's say that he took mom to the bank and she just wrote him a check for a hundred thousand dollars okay that can be a challenge later also in the same manner as the others. And, you know, frequently you'll see joint accounts that are survivorship rights to one of the two joint account holders. So, you know, you, you got to be very careful with those things. And, I, and, I, and I'll just make one other comment, which is not really a legal analysis or issue, but I, you know, I've been doing this for so long and it's more of how does this happen? What's the psych What's the psyche behind these things? You know, these, the client you just uh, identified, they were probably, you know, they're probably brothers and brother and sisters and somewhat close. Mm -hmm. And then something like this happens and they'll never have a relationship the rest of their life is what usually happens, which is right. sad. Um, but so in the, in this, in your particular case, which I wasn't even, I didn't even know about until just now, I would guess that the son felt this justification and, and, and felt like that my sisters aren't doing anything. And here I am taking care of mom when she's, you know, bathing her, changing her diaper, whatever it might be, and they're not doing anything. So you start building up this animosity and this feeling of I'm entitled, entitlement, entitlement. And then, you know, and then you might cross a line that you don't even know exists. And the person, the mother is so dependent on you that she's going to do whatever you ask because she needs you. Then the daughters or sisters see that happening. And even though they didn't do anything, they're just, all they're focusing on is look what Peter or whatever his name did. And it's a, it's a vicious circle. Yeah. And, and for not knowing about the case, it sounded like you were in the depositions with me on all those matters, because that was the testimony. Right. Uh, but if you are, the, the kind of the, the, the party that now has been disinherited through whatever the process, uh, is there a timeline? Is there, I mean, do you have to act quickly? What, what is the, you know, what are the steps that have to be taken after somebody passes away and you discover, you know, and sometimes it takes a while to discover you're not going to be inheriting what you thought you were. Right. So that's also a great question. And if anybody feels that they may have been disinherited, 
inherited or there might have been a transfer other than to them that should have been to them, they really need to contact an attorney almost immediately. And and, and there's something referred to as statute of limitations, which I know you've heard of, uh, but basically that is limitations of time in which to bring a cause of action. And usually, usually they're, they could be like for contract, six year, tort, four year, tort like negligence could be four years. So they're, they, you know, they give you reasonable amount of time. In some probate litigation disputes, it could be months, three months. For example, a will contest has to be brought within three months of the date when, not when the will is filed with a probate court, but around that time. So, you know, and you're mourning, you're not thinking about that. So will contests are the most draconian, the most where you better jump on it. And then trust contests are longer, the others maybe are longer, but you never know. And from a practical standpoint, the assets can dissipate. So you kind of want to jump on it relatively quickly, more so than other causes of action. You got it. You got to be. In fact, I'm working on one now in Florida and there was, there's a conf, there was a conflict between the, the rules of their civil procedure and their, their, their state law, statutory law, which arguably reduced the time period from the three months to 20 days, you know? And so you gotta, you gotta get to somebody who understands the process and procedures in a particular jurisdiction almost immediately. And then I guess finally, what I mean, if, if you if you're asked by someone, maybe a family member, to help them make changes to their will or their trust, or or even to take you to the bank and make changes on payable on death or transfer on death designations, or you know to change the beneficiary on their life insurance or their retirement accounts. Right. What are the risks? What should they be thinking about, and what should they be doing if you're asked by a family member? Because you, know, you want to help. If they say, "Hey, can you help me do this?" Certainly, right. most people want to help that family member. But how do you avoid some of these these pitfalls? Like, like I said, the, the you know, it, to the extent the, the the person really needs help, you want to be able to help them. But the the less you do, the less fingerprints you have on it, the more likely you are going to be able to keep that gift. I, you know, so you always have to balance that. You know, if my father asks me to take him to see an attorney and I know that just me driving him is going to be looked with jaundiced eyes later and I'm going to be scrutinized for it, you know, I can't get an 88-year-old man an Uber and send him on his way. So, you know, it's challenging. It's challenging. You know, even, you know, I would suggest that the per, a person in that situation contact their own attorney and ask for advice. That's privileged. They can communicate. They can guide them. Even if they have to pay some for that, that may be money well spent to help. That, that, that attorney wouldn't be the testator's attorney. It would be the, the person who's asking these questions, own attorney. Again, it's all privileged. And then they can kind of help. He or she can help that person. Yeah, and, I, and I think, you know, as an estate planning attorney, when, when we have those clients come in and say, we want to make this change and it's late in life and they're maybe doing something that seems a little unusual. You know, we always try to say, okay, whoever brought you here is going to sit out in the lobby. They're not going to be in the meeting with us. Right. And, you know, really going through, we have a, a whole series of questions that we can ask the client to make, you know, to get as much ev evidence as we can, that there isn't undue influence, that there isn't, you know, somebody persuading them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. But, you know, again, having having that distance and having an attorney involved is really going to, I think, minimize the risk that might be there. And, and you know, and, and, and to uh, further the point that you just made, it's imperative that an attorney that is hired to make a change 
is, is a really solid attorney. I know I mentioned this before, but it's imperative because if I'm now representing the plaintiff in the later lawsuit, and I have to question the attorney who is now, I refer to that person as the gatekeeper, they're going to testify to a jury or a judge. I would never have let so-and-so sign this unless I was comfortable. It's not even ethical. And they're very difficult witnesses to penetrate in, and they might have allowed it, but how's a judge or a jury going to see that? And then I have to cross-examine this person and beat them up on their credibility. And it's just very, and then if you get an attorney who has a very good reputation at one of the bigger law firms, I hate to say this, but that's even more meaningful. Like everyone's heard of Jones Day or everyone's heard of McDonald Hopkins. It's likely the judge or the jury will kind of have a preconceived notion that, well, they wouldn't monkey around uh, versus a solo practitioner. Not that solo practitioners aren't excellent too, but that reputation from the firm goes a long way. And it really, you know, I love them when I'm defending. I hate them when I'm prosecuting. Well, how did you get into this area of law? You know, so I, um, my three practice areas are real estate litigation, business litigation, and this, among some others. And early on, I was in a business litigation department at a previous firm. And the supervising attorney had somebody gave him this case. And I pretty much ran with it. And it was the first one I had. This is 30 years ago. And I enjoyed it very much because it was a lot different than the business litigation. And you, know, you had a lot more emotions and personal parts to it. But it also, I found it was legally sophisticated and challenging. So I enjoyed having them kind of merge together. And I found over the years that because I do business litigation and real estate litigation, frequently the cases all come together. So it's not unusual for one of my probate cases, we'll call it, or inheritance cases to involve uh, shares of stock or membership units or real estate interests. And I also have cases where there's fiduciary duties that are owed as a trustee, and I'm representing that person. And then they also happen to be the uh, managing member of a closely held company. And the person who is suing is challenging both. I've even had them when they're challenging all three with the real estate. So they're fun, but they're very challenging in that you're not even sure which court you can go to. So you may be in two or three different courts at the same time. And those things wear on people and wear on the clients. And anyway, so I got into it all these years ago, circling back to your question, and I enjoyed it very much. And, and I still do. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I encourage our listeners uh, to go to our website, mcdonaldhopkins.com, to get more information on this topic as well as many others. And I'll, as always, I thank our listeners for listening and, and uh, keep tuning in. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time also.